Who did their homework this week? A couple. And that was to read verses uh, 29 through 35. Um, I have, the reason I want you all to read it is so that, that you've already got in your mind a picture of what Scripture says. Um, I have already mentioned a couple of times that I am, I'm not super comfortable with this passage, this particular chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And part of that is because of my own um, lack of study, uh, just not an area that I've had a, a, a whole lot of time to study in eschatology-wise. Um, but there's another part, too, that has nothing to do with me, um, at least not a whole lot. And that is the fact that for the last 2,000 years, if we if we take a, a conservative view that Matthew wrote this gospel uh, probably sometime in the late 50s to early 60s AD, right? That, that that's when Matthew actually put pen to paper. So so we'll say over the last 1950 years, there have been church fathers, disciples of the disciples, learned great men of church history who have poured over this chapter. They have parsed the Greek. They've examined the words individually, collectively. They've read the historical accounts from Josephus, uh, who's a Jewish historian, from Tacitus, who was a Roman historian who recorded things that happened in the first century in Israel. They come from different backgrounds. Uh, the early church fathers, such as Polycarp, who was actually a disciple of Peter's, if I remember correctly, um, uh, all the way up through Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, uh, Zwingli, I can't remember his first name right now, uh, Charles Spurgeon, all of these great, great men of the faith who have studied this and studied this, uh, they, they come from a Catholic background, from a Protestant back, background background. Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, Pentecostal, all of these different backgrounds, and they all study with an earnest desire to seek and to know what this passage means, and there's very little consensus between them. That's a lot of people and a lot of different positions on this one passage of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. But that that lends to my discomfort because I'm very, 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 very careful to not be dogmatic about something that's not that clear. In other words, I don't want to take the position that this is what it means, and if you don't believe me, you're wrong. Okay, I don't I don't want you guys to think that way about this particular chapter. And as we've moved deeper into chapter 24, the material's not getting any easier either. I mean, up to this point, remember the three positions that, that we had, those who believe that the majority of the book is talking only about the destruction of Jerusalem, those who believe that the majority of the book is talking only about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world, and then those like me who are sitting on the fence in the middle who understand that it probably is referring to both events, right? 
up to this point, we're pretty solidly convinced that at the very least, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Because everything that we've seen in chapter 24 so far fits into the narrative of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not to say he's not talking about this part over here, but we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't happened yet. So it's still future prophecy for us. That fits in at the end of chapter 23. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus said that these things would happen within a generation, the span of about 40 years. If Jesus said it sometime around the end of his life in 30 A.D., the temple and Jerusalem were sacked and destroyed in 70 A.D. That fits. That starts to give us this little hope that maybe this is really easy, right? And then we hit verse 29, and there's an explosion that goes off because of the word that Jesus uses at the beginning of verse 29. So we have to start answering some tough questions once we read our passage for this morning, because we have to figure out what he means by what he says. So let's dive in. I'm going to read, I'm only going to read verses 29 through 31, and then we'll look at uh, verses 32 through 35 later on in the message. So let's all stand. 429 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Let's pray. Father, once again this morning, I ask that you help us to be careful students of your word. Help us to seek to understand. Help us to uh, to realize that we may not ever hold all the answers to this passage. But Father, most of all, help us to glorify you as we study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, first things first, this is all part of Jesus' answer to the disciples when they ask the question, when will, these come, when will these things come to pass, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And that question is asked because Jesus made this prophetic announcement, first on the scribes and the Pharisees, right, back in chapter 23, when the last woe on the scribes and the Pharisees was because they declared that they would have had no part in the slaughter of the prophets if they had been alive when their ancestors were. In other words, they had that holier-than-thou attitude that they would have known better. And Jesus basically says hogwash. We know that's not the case because you're doing the same thing that your ancestors did. You're going to execute me is basically what he says. And so he declares that that judgment is going to be visited upon them. And he tells the disciples that this would happen within the generation. And then in verse 37 of chapter 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to you, uh, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you were not willing? Your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
which sounds like he's talking about coming in judgment over Jerusalem. Right? And then in chapter 24, verse 1, he left the temple, he's going away, and the disciples say, look, isn't the temple gorgeous? Isn't it a sight to behold? And Jesus says, yep. And the time is soon coming where there isn't going to be a stone left upon another. This is when the disciples ask, when? When is this going to happen? What are going to be the signs? Because of his answer, the context of his statement there in verse 36, I say to you all these things will come upon this generation. We don't really have any other way to look at this than the normal way of understanding generation to mean 40 years within the lifespan of the people who are standing here hearing this message. that's, That's item number one. This is all setting the context for what's in the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. A little bit broader in scope, I want you to think about the people who are asking the question. The 12, the disciples, they are a representative cross-section of Jewish society. Okay, You have uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John who are undoubtedly fishermen. When Jesus called them, what were they doing? Uh, they, they were fixing their nets and getting ready to take care of their boats after a day of fishing. That's easy. Um, we have Matthew, who was a tax collector. He was a sympathizer. He was an employee of the Romans. Um, Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot, is a religious freedom fighter. The Zealots were a group that were religiously opposed to the occupation of Rome. So they were the ones who would start the riots. They were the ones who would do things to make life difficult for the Romans. Whether this was his occupation or not, it was what he occupied his time doing. That's why he was called Simon the Zealot. Um, If you look at John chapter 21, you don't have to turn there. Um, John 21, this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus where the disciples are out fishing and he shows up on the shore of Galilee, right? Well, Thomas and Bartholomew, who is also called Nathaniel, are listed as being in the boat with James, John, Peter, and Andrew. So they're also fishing. So there's a possibility that those two are also fishermen. Philip... James, the son of Elpheus, and Judas, called Thaddeus, were probably tradesmen of some variety. That leaves just one left out of the twelve. Judas Iscariot. Okay? Um, there, There are a couple of different positions here. Number one is that he had been a bookkeeper, an accountant, if you will, for a rich household, and had a jealousy for the wealth that the the master of the household had, which is why he was so money-focused. If you remember when the the woman came and poured the oil over Jesus' feet, she anointed his feet with oil, and, and Judas is the one that lost his mind. And that could have been sold for so much money so he could feed the poor and line my pockets, right? Judas was always the one worried about money. 
Or it could be that he was from a poorer family and had that lust for money because it was something he didn't have. We, we don't know for certain. But the, the point here is they're just plain ordinary folks. They're not religious scholars. They're not, uh, in fact, when, when Peter and, and John are taken into custody in the book of Acts, when they heal the, the lame man at the beautiful gate, and they're taken before the Sanhedrin, what does Luke record? When the Sanhedrin realized that these were uneducated fishermen, they're not the elite in Israel. These are the rank-and-file ordinary people. And I think part of the reason that Jesus called rank-and-file ordinary people is because he wanted the message to be for the ordinary person, not for the religious superstars, not for the, the celebrity preachers, not for the Pharisees, not for the folks that were at the temple all day long because that's where they lived. He wanted people to understand that the message was for everybody. So these 12 guys who walked around with Jesus, who heard his teaching, who even did miracles when he sent them out into the cities, right? They recognized Jesus as God's anointed. Remember the great confession of faith that Peter made in Caesarea Philippi when he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The other 11 are standing right there. This was their consensus. They knew that Jesus was God's anointed. They called him the son of the living God. And yet, Less than a paragraph later, we're told that Jesus said, and now the time has come, I must go to Jerusalem and be crucified after I'm handed over to the Gentiles. And Peter, the mouthpiece, says, no way, that's not going to happen. To which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. What you're speaking is flesh and blood, right? That's the message of the flesh. Your flesh doesn't want it to happen. Your spirit doesn't understand this is the best thing to happen. They completely misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. They missed the significance of his death and resurrection. Because they were the rank and file, plain old ordinary Jewish people. See, when Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, the people shouted out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? They shouted that. They threw palm branches on the road. They recognized Jesus was the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David. All of these prophetic terms to, to illustrate who Jesus was. But they missed what it meant because they expected the Messiah to deliver God's people, specifically Israel, from the oppression of the Romans, just like they expected or just like they had heard that Gideon had removed the oppression of the Midianites back in the book of Judges, just like Deborah and Barak, just like Samson, just like all of the heroes of the faith from Israel's history, what they expected was another of that kind of Messiah. 
They expected Jesus to come in and establish God's kingdom over which ethnic Israel would hold a place of prominence because they were God's chosen people. As such, when the disciples asked the question about the destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus' return, I really am convinced that they had no concept of Jesus' second coming like we do. We see Jesus' second coming through the lens of people who are 2,000 years removed, not to mention not being ethnically Israel. What they saw was a picture that went like this. Jesus is put on trial by the Roman authorities and he is exiled from Jerusalem. He hadn't committed a death penalty offense, so there's no reason for them to think that he would have been executed. Right? So they are probably thinking that when he said he was going to be crucified and then rise from the dead, they are probably thinking metaphorically that he's going to be exiled and cut off from Jerusalem, and then he's going to return in three days' time leading an army. Okay? They expected him to um, come back in a righteous act of judgment on the Romans. He would allow the destruction of Jerusalem, much like the Babylonians had destroyed it back in 536 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and they took over the southern kingdom and they took him into exile. Then when the time was right, that probably that three-day period, Jesus would lead the armies of God, fighters from the 12 tribes, to retake Jerusalem and establish God's kingdom for God's people, ethnic Israel. There's no place in this economy for the Gentiles, right? Everything is centered on Jerusalem, Israel, the promised land, and God's people. That's it. This is the root of their question. This is going to happen within this generation. When and what do we need to be on the lookout for so we can be prepared? So we can help you overthrow the Romans, kick the Romans out, take Jerusalem, and establish God's kingdom. Remember James and John, their mother, asked the question, Jesus, when when you're in your kingdom, can my son sit at your right hand and your left? Is she thinking about a heavenly kingdom? No, she's thinking about the throne room in Jerusalem. And then Jesus throws him that curveball that we looked at last week when he said, when you see these signs, get out of Jerusalem. How are we going to help overthrow the, the invaders if we're not in Jerusalem? Things are going to be worse than ever before. But this is when God's going to come and establish his kingdom forever in Jerusalem. How is it going to be that bad? Now, it's easy for me, for you, to look back with 2,000 years of biblical study and commentaries and scholarly examinations and a, and a whole mess of other data 
to see that Jesus wasn't necessarily describing the same thing that the disciples were planning on. (laughs) Right? Because if he had been, then what would have happened shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? The kingdom would have been reestablished in Jerusalem. And that still doesn't touch on the question of how much of the prophecy is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and how much of it is about Jesus' return and how much of it is overlapped. Up until now, it's been really easy for us to think about just the destruction of Jerusalem. But now the water gets really muddy because of that first word in the text. Verse 29, the first word immediately. What does that mean? Yeah. So, being the word nerd that I am, Okay, the word immediately, the the M at the beginning of that means no. And the middle of the word is media, which is middle, right? So the idea is with no intervening time, this is what's going to happen. So after all of the things that Jesus says, the tribulation, Jesus says with no intervening time, something else is going to happen. So I read that and I went, well, this really just makes life difficult for me. Perhaps I can blame it on the translators, and it's just the word that the ESV uses at the beginning of that verse. So I pulled out my library, my software library, of all the different translations that I have, and I looked through every one of them. And you know what? Every one of them starts with in verse 29, immediately. (laughs) Well, crud. That went out the window. So then I figured, okay, so maybe it's just, it's one of those Greek words that could have a couple of different meanings. So let me see what the Greek word is. So I look up the Greek word, and you know what it means? Immediately. So what Jesus is trying to say is, with no intervening time, once that tribulation has begun, the next thing to happen is pretty significant. He says that the sun will be darkened, the moon won't shine, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. That's not something you're going to miss. Okay? If we just look at this from a straight physical science perspective, he is talking about a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, some kind of astronomical phenomenon that would block the light of the stars and probably a reference to some very severe storm activity, like tornadoes, typhoons, hurricanes, something. If that happened, there'd be a historical record of it. And I even went and looked. I went out, Google is a wonderful thing. I went out and I looked for uh, solar eclipses that are recorded to have taken place in the first century A.D. There's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of solar eclipses. There's partials. There's totals. But of course, since Jesus is talking to people in Israel, I figured that they would be eclipses that were viewable from Israel. So I looked up the latitude and longitude of Israel, and I went through that table 
for all the ones from, say, oh, I don't know, 55 A.D. to about 75 A.D., right? There were none visible in Israel. Everywhere else around the planet, none over Israel. So I looked up lunar eclipses. None over Israel. So that means that the things he's talking about didn't take place in the context of this tribulation immediately. Well, that makes things difficult, doesn't it? Because if I'm over here and I'm reading chapter 24 and I understand with clear, clear understanding that Jesus is talking at the very least in part about the destruction of Israel and that that tribulation that he talks about and says that it's never been worse and it never will be again, that's how Israel looked when the when Jerusalem was destroyed. Why didn't this stuff happen? But he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So, I have to go look at the wider picture of Scripture. Okay. Oh, yeah, one other thing that Jesus says is going to happen in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven. Um, it, that's not recorded as having happened yet, just to let you know. That's, that's basically what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Don't worry, you didn't miss it. Um. There's there's a description in here of all of this stuff that is not unique to Jesus' statement on the Mount of Olives. Um you know, if I if I continue with the rest of this passage just because it, it all fits into this, after the sign of the Son of Man, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why would they mourn? Yeah, Jesus is coming back, right? Keep, keep this in mind. People can be saved by faith. Nations cannot. The people who make up those nations can be. Nations cannot. All right? So, in fact, the nations have all been opposed to Christ. Always. If all of a sudden the world sees, sees Jesus coming in glory, they're going to mourn because they realize they've been wrong. They realize that all that stuff that they've dismissed about the, the, the man upstairs, which I hate that phrase, I cringe every time I hear it, but all that God stuff that they've dismissed as just superstition and a crutch for people who need something to hold on to is true. That there is an objective standard of righteousness that God expects us to be held to, and they missed it. That there is a judgment coming. Yeah, I would mourn too. I would fall on my knees and cry out in repentance. Of course, would that be true repentance? I don't know. 
Verse 31, he will send his angels out with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather the elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to another. That sounds an awful lot like Paul's description of Jesus' return in 1 Thessalonians. This whole thing sounds a lot like what Peter described in 2 Peter that we looked at in Sunday school this morning. Right? All of this does. However... Just because they sound alike doesn't necessarily mean that they're describing the same event. I told you, my position is the one in the middle here, right? That Jesus is talking about the near-term destruction of Jerusalem and the long-term end of the age and his second coming. Take a look at some Old Testament prophecy for me. Flip over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. You get to Isaiah 13, look at verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. What's that sound like? It sounds a lot like what Jesus is describing, right? However, that particular prophecy was a prophecy against Babylon for her conquest of Judah. That judgment did happen. Babylon was destroyed. Babylon was taken themselves into captivity by the Medo-Persian Empire. So does that mean that when that happened that the stars didn't shine and the sun was eclipsed and the moon was eclipsed and and there were none of those normal lights in heaven no that's not recorded historically so does that mean god's prophecy is void no this is what we call apocalyptic imagery all right there are some passages where things are described in such a way as to get across the point of the extent of the calamity, right? Now, have you ever suffered a a, a real bad calamity in your life? The death of a loved one, uh, uh, your house burns down, uh, everything just looks like the world has come to an end. Have you ever gone through one of those? Okay. Our modern poets, our modern songwriters even include in their descriptions of events like that, that the sun doesn't shine as bright and the stars don't seem to glimmer the way they used to, right? It's the same picture. It's the same terminology. It's the same idea that when we go through a destruction such as what Babylon went through, everything loses its luster. And I think because Jesus is speaking in a prophetic and apocalyptic manner that he's using the same 
word picture to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not to say he's not talking about a future event, because I still have Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I still have Peter's letter to the church, and they both say the same thing. They both say that Jesus is going to show up with a loud noise. There's going to be a trumpet blast. Peter makes it even more clear that that the heavens are going to burn away, right? I am still convinced because Jesus is talking to Jewish people in Jerusalem who really and truly still idolize Jerusalem and the temple and their heritage as descendants of Abraham. This is the center of their religious life, and it's about to be destroyed. I really think Jesus is still talking about both that and his future return. The evidence is too strong for me to say that he's only talking about his future return. He's talking figuratively about the destruction of Jerusalem, about God's judgment on Jerusalem for her disobedience. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be surprised when it happens. He don't want he doesn't want them to be caught unaware. Yes, this lines up with what's going to happen at the at the time of his second coming. But in the more immediate context, the here and now, in answer to the disciples' question, the signs will be terrible and the destruction will be worse. And it will be the Son of Man who's in judgment of Jerusalem and the people. That's something he doesn't want them to forget. See, because who destroyed Jerusalem? The Roman soldiers did, right? The Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. Who judged Jerusalem for her unfaithfulness? God did. Now, if we move on to the the, the last four verses, these are... These four verses are actually probably one of the easiest things for us to wrap our heads around. Starting in verse 32, he says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, Jesus says this is as obvious as figuring out when summertime is. Okay? Now, this year it was a little bit harder for us down here on the coast to figure out when summer was coming because we didn't have a spring. Right? I mean, we had cold, 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 cold August. It was, there was, (laughs) there was, I know we went through June and July. I remember things happening in the months of June and July, but it, it really was. It was cold, 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 cold. Summer. And it, it, it was like somebody set the thermostat from 60 degrees to 90 degrees, just like that. But Jesus says, when we see certain signs, we know that it's summertime is approaching. When that miserable Bradford pear tree in my front yard starts to put out shoots, I know that it's officially summertime. 
Now, springtime down here. Summertime everywhere else in the world where they have four seasons. This stuff is not going to be something we're going to miss. Now, once again, this is my answer for all those people who say Jesus' return is going to be two-part and the first part we're not going to know about. I don't know where you get that from Scripture. I really, I just have a hard time finding it. And I know there's earnest believers who, who can point to a passage and say, see, right here. But I can point at this and I can point at 1 Thessalonians and I can point at 2 Peter and say, yeah, but here. And here Jesus says, you're not going to miss it. When you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know summer is near. Likewise, when you see all the things that I'm talking about, you know that I am near. It's going to happen. So what does this mean for us? If part of this prophecy was dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, right, that's in the past. That's our history. What can we learn from it? Okay, yeah, that Jesus was a prophet, and and he meant what he said, and what he said did come to pass, right? So we can believe that he said that this was going to happen. And he told us what to look for. He didn't tell us when it was going to happen, but he told us what to look for. What's going to happen? There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be trouble that we've never seen before. There's going to be things that we go through. He's talking to believers. This is not something that we're going to miss. Now, there are those who will argue with me and say, well, when he said, when he said that this generation would not pass away, he was talking about the kind of people that were alive in that generation, wicked and evil and, and, and all that sort of stuff, that they wouldn't pass away until that time. Well, it's, it's possible that that meaning was in there. Because, you know, up until Jesus returns and does establish his kingdom, what kind of people are going to exist? Wicked, evil, selfish, human, fallen, sinful people. And so what do we do in the meantime? What is our role? We need to be obedient. We need to carry the gospel out, just like we saw in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Every day that Jesus doesn't come back is another day that we get to minister to the hurting. That we get to feed the people who who don't have food. That we get to love people who are unlovable. That we get to tell people about Jesus who don't know him. We get to encourage one another. Every day that passes without Jesus' return is an opportunity for us to live that life of expectation, to live that life of obedience to what he's commanded us to do. My challenge for you is to take that knowledge and to put your feet on it. Get up and do what he's called us to do.